Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us from your truth today and give us willing hearts to respond to what you have to say to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Many years ago, I happened to meet the minister of a church I was involved with at the time, and we had a brief chat together. And in the course of a conversation, I asked him how the ministry was going at the church and how he was finding things. And I've always remembered his reply. He said, it's battles and blessings, battles and blessings. And it was rather a quaint phrase, But I've thought about it over the years, and it strikes me that it's a great summary of the Christian life and of Christian ministry. When we're seeking to build the church and grow the kingdom of God, there are many encouragements, aren't there? Many positive steps forward that gladden our hearts, but there are also challenges and obstacles and things that are guaranteed to frustrate us. At times, our attempts to build the kingdom of God can feel more like wading through treacle than dancing on the mountaintops. And we see this in our passage today. Nehemiah's had many encouragements. He's gained the agreement of the king to rebuild Jerusalem. He's gained the support of his fellow Jews to build the city walls. Last week, we saw that great progress has been made. Chapter 4, verse 6, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. You see, all is going well. There's much to be excited about. But, there's always a but. And suddenly into the mix come all kinds of obstacles and difficulties which threaten to pour cold water on all that enthusiasm and stop the building in its tracks. So last week in chapter 4, we saw that the threat is external. Powerful figures like Sanballat, Tobiah, and others are determined to stop the progress. Often the threats to building the kingdom of God come from outside. Powerful forces around us may seek to block the ongoing mission of the church in the world. That was last week. This week, in chapter 5, we see that sometimes the obstacles and challenges are internal. They come from inside the community of God's people. Nehemiah's just dealt with one big threat that comes from outside, and now he's faced by a potentially deadly threat that comes from a most unexpected source. It comes from within the family of God. So let's examine this threat and see how Nehemiah deals with it. So we're going to look first of all today at recognizing conflict as it arises. It's amazing, isn't it, how quickly conflict and confrontation can arise. I remember some years ago, I arrived at work one morning and I was going through my emails in our large open plan office. Suddenly a colleague came up to me, leaned forward in my face in a threatening manner and shouted, liar, liar. I looked at him in complete disbelief because I hadn't got the faintest idea what he was talking about. Well, we talked it through, and it transpired that he'd misinterpreted something that another colleague had said, and he thought I had wronged him. And the truth that he wasn't aware of was that behind the scenes, I'd actually gone out of my way to help him. 
And when he found out the truth, he realized the mistake he'd made and was terribly apologetic. And fortunately, it all ended well. But it shows, doesn't it, just how easy it is for conflict to arise out of the blue. And we see this in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Just as Nehemiah thinks that the external crisis of chapter 4 is over, here comes this big internal crisis. Verse 1, the men and their wives raise a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. It's not a tort storm in a teacup. It's not going to blow over easily after a quick discussion. This is a big issue, and it threatens to destroy any further progress on building the city of Jerusalem. So what exactly is this crisis all about? Three main grievances are raised by the people who are building the wall. The first comes in verse 2 from a group of families who have no income from their normal work because they're involved now in building the wall. They don't have enough money to buy grain. The second comes in verse 3 from a group of families who are already mortgaging their land. And they might lose that land if they have to buy grain rather than paying back their debts. The third comes in verse 4 from a group of families who are having to borrow money to pay tax to the king. All of these groups feel a great sense of injustice. Here they are, they're doing God's work, they're building the wall, giving everything they've got, and they're suffering from it financially due to a lack of sufficient income. Most are having to borrow money, and they're borrowing it from fellow Jews who are doing rather nicely from the whole arrangement. And the situation has become so bad, some of the workers, verse 5, they've had to sell their sons and daughters into slavery in order to survive. The idea that a laborer is worthy of their hire seems to have gone completely out of the window. It's clear they've got a fair grievance. And the problem is there doesn't appear to be any official grievance procedure within the Jewish community, so they're having to rely on raising a serious protest. So it's clear that things are serious. Now, the issue may well have started as a period of latent tension, building up slowly, but it's now evolved into a potentially more serious and worrying crisis. And everything depends now on resolving this issue before it escalates into something really huge. So we come to our second point. We need to resolve conflict before it escalates. Let's have a look at how Nehemiah resolves this crisis before it escalates too far. And we'll see he exhibits a fantastic example of leadership. And he does so following a number of simple but very wise steps. The first step, verse 6, is that Nehemiah feels very angry. He recognizes immediately that serious injustice has occurred. He gets involved personally and emotionally with the issue. And where injustice occurs, it's good for us to feel it, isn't it? Have a sense of righteous anger, to have a sense of wanting to right the wrongs that have occurred, especially if they've taken place within the community of God's people. We can perhaps all think of examples in recent years where, sadly, injustice has taken place within the church, and it should be a matter of real concern to us. The second step, verse 7, is that we must not allow our emotion to cloud our judgment. Nehemiah ponders these issues in his mind. He doesn't immediately lash out, 
without any thought or consideration. He deliberates, he thinks the issues through. Emotion is important, but it needs to be tempered with judgment. It's often said, isn't it, that it's never a good idea to write an email when you're angry. Because you may say things in haste that you regret. Always best to sleep on it overnight and then write a response when your emotion has cooled down. The third step, verses 7 to 8, is to select your style of handling conflict. Now, contemporary thinking on conflict suggests there are five styles of dealing with conflict. Here's a well-known model from Thomas Kielman. So one style is to compete to confront the issue head-on and seek to win the argument. Effectively, it's saying, I'm going to win this one. Another style is the opposite, to accommodate. It's effectively saying, okay, you win. Another style is avoid. Get your head down, pretend the conflict isn't there. Another style is to collaborate. This is the classic win-win scenario where you both come out as winners. And a final style is compromise, which involves a little bit of winning and a little bit of losing. Five styles. And which style is best? Well, according to contemporary thinking, it depends. We need different styles for different situations. So, which style does Nehemiah adopt here? Well, he doesn't know anything about modern conflict resolution theory, but he goes for compete. He faces the nobles. In verse 7, he confronts them at a large gathering. In verse 8, he's dead straight with them, and he tells them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. Why does he go for this approach? It's a moral issue. The nobles are clearly in the wrong. There's no denying it, and it's imperative to deal with this issue head on. The fourth step to note, verses 7 to 8, is that Nehemiah deals with this situation quickly. He doesn't prevaricate. He doesn't try and sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't pander to the nobles because they're powerful. He's decisive. He's clear. He's courageous. He deals with it immediately because to delay will make it worse. Verse 9, he makes it clear. What you are doing is not right. Verse 10, let the exacting of usury stop. Verse 11, give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards. There's no messing, no ambiguity. The instructions are clear and immediate. It's always best to deal with conflict as quickly as we can. Don't let it fester. Don't don't prevaricate. Move to resolution as quickly as possible. Fifth step to note, verses 12 to 13, is to ensure that the agreement for change is taken seriously. No lip service, no saying in the fullness of time we might get round to it. Nehemiah gets the nobles and officials to take an oath. This is perhaps the Old Testament equivalent of putting it in writing. And Nehemiah adds a warning in verse 13 just to make sure there's no going back, the issue's being dealt with quickly, and it's going to be permanent. There's one more sixth step. In verse 14 through to verse 18, we see that Nehemiah sets an example. In the past, the Jewish nobles and officials, the top people, have treated their fellow citizens shamefully. But Nehemiah demonstrates how we should act 
within the community of God's people. As the leader, he doesn't take advantage of his position. He treats the nobles and officials with generosity. He arranges for 150 of them to sit down at his table and eat with him for free. It's quite a dinner party, isn't it? He doesn't use his power to extort money from the people to pay for this, verse 15, as many of the leaders of the time tended to do. It all comes from his own pocket. He sets an example of generosity to the whole community. He makes sure that he practices the old motto of practice what we preach. So we need to resolve conflict before it escalates. And then thirdly, we need to restore focus on the mission. We've seen in this chapter that thankfully the conflict has been resolved. But it's important to realize that the aim of resolution is not just to make everybody happy. The ultimate aim of resolution here is restoration of the mission. The key aim is always to restore and get back to the mission that we have been given. And the mission in Nehemiah's day was to get back to building the wall. In our day, of course, it's to build the kingdom of God. It's interesting, isn't it? There are always two casualties of conflict among God's people. And I often call them the two W's. The first W is that worship goes out of the window. And you see here that as soon as conflict has been resolved, we read in the last part of verse 13, at this the whole assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. It's hard to worship, isn't it, when you're in conflict. And a key part of restoration is that worship is now back in its rightful place. Our relationship with God as a community is back where it belongs. And the second W in conflict is that the work of the kingdom of God suffers. But when conflict is resolved, the work of building can begin again. Verse 16, after the conflict has been resolved, we read, I devoted myself to the work on the wall and all my men were assembled there for the work. Here they are, back, building again. The key task of building has been restored. And so as we draw to a close today, let's remember what really matters. You see, we will face obstacles and challenges that will seek to hinder the work of building the kingdom of God. And they may be external and they may be internal, but they are bound to come. And I often think we're called to develop missile lock. might seem a strange illustration. When a fighter jet is seeking to attack another plane, it always seeks to get missile lock. And once it's got that lock, that plane can dance all over the sky. It doesn't matter. That lock is on and they're going to achieve the aim. And we too need to be totally focused on the task we have been given. Whatever obstacles come to throw us off course, what matters is that whatever happens around us, even within our Christian community, we must keep on building. Building the kingdom of God for the next generation. We need a total focus so that nothing will ever deflect us from this mission. You know, we may sometimes face conflict within the church. We may face division. Thankfully, these things are rare. But we need to be real and recognize we're all human. These things can happen. Church is never immune from these things. 
But if conflict arises, either as individual church members or within the church as a whole, let's remember this example from Nehemiah. Let's ask God to give us wisdom to deal with our conflict swiftly, to seek for resolution, and to restore our focus so that our great mission, the building of the church, can move forward and go from strength to strength into the future. And we know we can have confidence because of the words of Jesus from the Gospels, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so let's pray for his strength to play our part as individuals and a community in this great task. Amen.